0: Have you ever noticed the amount of time and space some critics devote to relating a film's plot? So much so, that quite often, more effort is made in synopsising the story than in actually evaluating how the piece functions. Such critics so fixate on the event's context, they completely miss the subtext. And when it comes to storytelling, subtext is everything. Subtext functions when a character has a clear motivation to behave in a certain way, but that motivation is not the real reason why they do it. As Emil Zola wrote, the true action of any play lies not in the facts of the plot, but in the inner struggles of the characters. Yeah, I know
1: what he means, but he beats around the bush. He beats around the bush. If he'd say the words, I'd give him a piece. If I wanted it, would I, wouldn't I ask you? No, then ask. You know would you Just you let it go. You know he wants you're it. annoying. I'm annoying. I'm annoying. I'm trying to eat a meal by myself. If you want to give him the sandwich, give him the sandwich. If you don't want to give him the sandwich, don't... You know, I don't want to give him the... Well, then just eat the sandwich. Then Shut don't, up. not Well, look at his eyes. I ask one simple question. You, get, you know what your problem is? You don't chew your food. That's why you get so irritable. It, it lumps you. you have like, roast beef in your heart. It just stays
0: there. And that's what all drama comes down to. Human behavior. The first time you watch a film, you're most likely following the plot. But what brings audiences back is character. What rivets the plot is human behaviour because it is only human behaviour that makes even the most absurd action believable. A man wakens to find his wife has left him for another man and he responds by going to war. Read Homer's Odyssey and you will see why this makes emotional sense. A young man wants to kill his stepfather. Look at Shakespeare's Hamlet to see how it is believable. Then consider this bizarre line of dialogue. I drink your milkshake. Plot doesn't transport you out of your seat. A dramatist's insight into human behaviour puts you inside the character's head, and that is what sweeps you away. Take, for instance, Diner, a movie written and directed by Barry Levinson in 1982.
1: can't compare Mathis to Sinatra. There's no way. No way. They're in totally different leagues. Eddie... They're both great singers. You know not thing about Sinatra, he's good, but uh, he's kind of thin. I don't like that. Yeah, but you can't compare them. Sinatra is the lord, all right? He's big in movies, he's big in nightclubs, he's what, big... Skip that. Let me ask you another question. Start. When you want to make out, who do you make out to? Sinatra or Mathis? Oh, that's a stupid question. One question. Answer that. It's irrelevant. I won't answer it. Mathis. There you go. Well, about you, Sherry? I'm married. We don't make out.
0: <laughs> At the time, Levinson was one of Hollywood's most successful screenwriters, having collaborated with Mel Brooks on two pictures, before earning an Oscar nomination in 1979 for And Justice for All. Diner, Levinson's directorial debut, was partially autobiographical, a loose memory of his time as a young man in his hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. Here is Levinson himself, talking about the film at last year's Toronto Film Festival. I
1: wanted, to, I wanted a movie that felt exactly the way I remembered the, the end of the 50s and, and, the, and the way we talked to one another. So it didn't have a, a real jokey thing to it, but it could be humorous. And so I wanted it to sort of flow and be messy and, and, and try to capture that. And... Uh, and, and that was just really it. I wanted to just to not not look flashy. Just look like that was the time frame. You know.
0: Here's the plot: Over the Christmas holidays of 1959, a group of young men reunite for their friend's wedding. And that's it. Until the wedding actually takes place, and it lasts barely six minutes at the end of the movie. All that really happens is small talk, conversations in the diner, exchanges in cars, discussions in bars. In fact, that was precisely the problem Levinson's agent, Mike Ovitz, had with the script. In the 1980s, Ovitz was the most powerful agent in Hollywood, and you don't get to that position without being intelligent. But when it came to Diner, Ovitz simply didn't get it. One person did get the script, and that was producer Jerry Weintraub. Before going into movies, Weintraub had been a personal manager to the likes of Frank Sinatra, Joey Bishop, Elvis Presley, Neil Diamond and Led Zeppelin. To manage such mercurial talents, you really have to be a people person. And upon reading Levinson's script, Weintraub simply said, I understand these guys. I know these guys. We're going to make this movie. See what I mean about human behavior?
1: Well, I mean, the roast beef is actually an interesting thing because I had a conversation with uh, uh, one of the studio people. who said, well, you know, you got a lot to learn about editing. And I said, well, I'm sure I do. I said, well, like an example. He said, well, you know, he said something about... Are you going to eat that sandwich? And you're not going to eat the sandwich. And he said, he said, just cut right through all that. Go right to the story. And I said, well, that is the story. That's really it. It just talks, that is the way to talk about relationship. Rather than talking about how long have we known one another and how long have we been friends and whatever, it, we don't talk that way to one another. We, it, it comes out in this sideways thing. So the fact that they're talking about roast beef And if you're going to eat it and you're not going to eat it, it tells you how well they know one another.
0: Weintraub's offer to Levinson was this. If he didn't like the first two days of rushes, he would have Levinson replaced. Levinson said yes and then went about casting complete unknowns. Sounds foolhardy, but Diner was an ensemble piece and Levinson reckoned that the cast's comparative lack of experience would help them bond together and provide him with what he needed. Levinson wanted conversation, not dialogue. He wanted behaviour, not acting. He wanted characters, not plot.
1: You know what word I'm not comfortable with?
0: Nuance.
1: It's not a real word. Like, gesture is a good word. At least, you know where you stand with gesture, but nuance? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: To help him in his search for actors, Levinson recruited casting director Ellen Chenoweth. Now, when I say casting director, Diner was only Chenoweth's second time at the task and her first time was Divorce Wars, a TV movie for ABC. Which would suggest that Levinson was being naive in the extreme. But here's the thing. Chenoweth had been office manager at New York's legendary Actors Studio and so she knew every face and more importantly, was on speaking terms with any and every talent about to break out on America's East Coast. So, through Chenoweth's eye, Levinson landed a cast that introduced audiences to Mickey Rourke, Kevin Bacon, Steve Guttenberg, Alan Barkin, Paul Reiser, Daniel Stern and Tom Daly. So far, so good. But when Levinson started filming, he hit a snag on his very first day. For the first scene, a television was supposed to be in the background showing a programme broadcast in 1959. But there was a video malfunction and the TV would not play in sync. So half of the first day was spent trying to repair it. Then on the second day, this time out on location, a support actress was supposed to ride a horse. Only she had lied about her equestrian ability and when she lost control, two hours sped by before the crew could get her and the horse back to the set. Which ordinarily would have meant that Weintraub would activate his agreement with Levinson and have him replaced. But he didn't. Why? Because the other footage from the first two days was so good, it showed that Levinson knew what he was doing. But, while Weintraub believed in Levinson, no one at the studio believed in the finished film. For some reason, they thought that they would be getting a film about college, something along the lines of John Landis's raucous Animal House that had done enormous business in 1978. Consequently, Diner was unceremoniously dumped into a few small theatres. Audiences were never really given a chance to see it, but somehow the theatres that did show it reported gradual returns, and by the end of the year, the sleeper hit had raked in a miraculous $14 million. Here is Levinson again.
1: In a sense, uh, I got a chance to to deal with the whole business, all the ups and downs in one movie, because it was so... um disliked by the studio and the initial press, and it was taken out of release, never to be seen again. So it was literally like, well, that's the end of my career. I made one movie, that's the end of your career, it's over. And then it suddenly turned around, Pauline Cale saw it and liked it, and all of a sudden it came into New York, and all of a sudden it was like sold out. There's this buzz, and all of a sudden you went from like, you'll never work again, to all of a sudden like, you know, you got attention. At least you're going to get to make one more movie.
0: Unquestionably, the film's strengths lie in its nuanced, yes, I did say nuanced, handling of the characters, with Levinson immediately showing himself to be more than adept in directing actors. And more importantly, over the gentle arc of the story, Levinson was able to aggregate a series of seemingly banal events into a sober look at the rights of young men. Without any specific moment serving as the turning point, what Levinson delivered was a feeling that important things sometimes happen when you're not paying attention.
1: You ever get the feeling there's something going on we don't know about?
0: For instance, Levinson had his story take place over Christmas week of 1959. But that wasn't just the end of the decade. Over in Cuba, Fidel Castro's revolution was finally seizing control of the Caribbean island, which just happens to be the same place that Eddie has planned his honeymoon. If Diner has any consistent shortcoming, I think it's in its use of music. Like many films set in the era, it exploits contemporary songs, but if you listen closely, new scenes often start with the start of a new song, playing the tune's opening bars before quickly fading back as the dialogue begins. It's called false energy, simulating momentum without adding any particular meaning. And I say that, because Levinson has one of his characters declare, Every one of my records
1: means something! The label, the producer, the year it was made, who was copying whose styles, who was expanding on that, don't you understand?
0: When I listen to my records, they take me back to certain points in my life, okay? Just don't touch my records, ever.
1: The first time that I met you? Modell Sisters' high school graduation party, right? 1955. And Ain't That a Shame was playing when I walked in the
0: door. So, how about slipping into a scene with the song already playing halfway through? After all, life does not time itself around the arrival of new songs. Diner takes place in Levinson's hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. And so fertile was the setting that he returned to it for not one, but three more pictures. Tin Man, Avalon, and Liberty Heights. But, enjoyable as they all are, none of them quite match a night at the diner.